Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we welcome back a reoccurring guest to the show, Tom Stevenson, Investment Director at Fidelity International, based out of London. In speaking with host Pamela Ritchie, Tom provides us with his up-to-date outlook on global markets amidst the market volatility and high inflation we've seen of late. Diversification continues to be important during times of crisis, and Tom shares what he is seeing on the ground in London and observations on global markets. This podcast was recorded on August 2nd, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. It's interesting, and you've pointed this out because you've just done a full sort of second half of the year outlook report, um, and we'll go through elements of that. How quickly have things changed though for you as you know, as you're writing it, as the machines were working to, to sort of put this report forth? We had quite a month of July. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the half year uh, point actually marked, uh, I would say, probably sort of peak uh, gloom about uh, about uh, the investment uh, landscape. Um, and July was and was was a pretty positive uh, month by comparison to the, the first six months of the year. Now, it would have been difficult for it not to have been positive compared to the first six months, because as we know, you know, the January to June period was the worst start to the year since 1970 uh, on, on on some measures. So it was, uh, you know, a 20 percent fall in the S&P 500, more than that in the in the in the Nasdaq. You know, it was a, it was a difficult start to the year. But interestingly, you know, interesting how July picked up There's a bit more optimism around um Interest rates, there's a bit more optimism maybe about inflation. So I do think we're at a, an interesting watershed moment in markets at the moment. It's very interesting. And I mean, it comes down, it comes back to sort of the question of what's been priced in. Let's start with what's been priced in on the interest rate rise story. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, we were I, I, I think it, that it keeps I, going. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, you know, what, what probably has been priced in is, is is a shallow recession. I, I, I think, you know, the, the question, are we going to have a recession? Are we not going to have a recession? I think we're probably answering that question. I think we probably are going to see recession in many parts of the world on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, but I think the key question is, is it a shallow recession or is it a deep recession? Because I think the market has probably priced in that shallow recession. What it hasn't priced in is a, is a more profound um, slowdown. Uh, and you know, we're starting to get hints of that with the earnings season. You know, we're, 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 we're in the middle of earnings season. We're probably more than halfway through earnings season now. And I think it's been better than expected. I think uh, earnings have generally exceeded forecasts. Um, and I think that as we entered earnings season, there wasn't a huge amount of conviction about that. People were not super confident that that was going to be the case. So I think that's been very encouraging. And I think that's part of the July market story. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's so interesting. But I, I guess 
then we then we move to the question of just the July market story, where where I mean equities have been down uh, mercilessly in some parts of the market. Um, can something like July sustain itself? I mean, we have geopolitical discussions that, that we can get into, but but what did that feel like to you in terms of July and what you're looking at, what you're measuring? Well, I mean, if you look if you look at the the historical record, you know, markets do not move in one direction consistently. You know, it, even in a strongly trending market, whether that's an up market, a bull market or a down market, a bear market, you, you very often get a number of counter trend movements that can be quite dramatic, um, uh, but they can also be quite short. And I, I don't think that I don't think that anyone should get overexcited about the, the rally in July. It did feel to me like um, a bit of a reassessment, a look at the results, a look at the expectations for how far interest rates are going to go. They're probably not going to go as far as people thought. Maybe inflation is beginning to, to, to peak out in, in some areas. But it doesn't feel to me like a resumption of a bull market. That feels to me like a bear market rally. Right. It's been a good one, but it feels like but, a bear market yeah. rally. Yeah, sort of a relief rally of sorts. Um, you know, it, when we go through these steps, it sort of it sort of takes you back to the question of the cycle, doesn't it? Or, and where sort of where we might be within that cycle. Um, we certainly can see what what the central banks around the world are are. They seem to be extremely focused on what they're doing, and market participants are interpreting that sometimes dovishly, sometimes less so. But they they are in a position to keep these hikes coming at this stage. What does it say about the cycle to you? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think the interesting thing about the cycle to me is that it's different for different asset classes. Um, you know, if you look at the equity market, if you look at the government bond market, tends to respond very early and very and very quickly. So, you know, we saw we saw government bond yields rising up to the sort of expected level of uh, of interest rates pretty quickly. We saw the stock market. Um, correcting itself pretty quickly over the first six months of the year. If you look at the corporate bond market, it's slightly behind the government bond market in that respect. And behind that is the commodity market, which is more of a late cycle asset class. And then I think you get to other asset classes. I'm thinking particularly of commercial property and also some of the private equity markets, where the bad news has not even yet been properly factored in. So thinking about the commercial property market in particular, it's very interesting. If you did you look, an article. You did an article on this about lag. It was in the Telegraph. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a real there's a real lag to what's going on in the real economy because what you get is you get a you get a lack of transactions. You get no activity in the in the property market. So you look at prices and you think. Prices are holding up pretty well, but the reality is they're not. And where you need to look to see what's really going on is in the publicly quoted uh, property market. So the REITs market, the real estate investment trusts, that's where you see what's really going on. And if you look there now, you see that a lot of those REITs are trading at very big discounts to the, the, the stated asset values. So what that's telling me is that the property market hasn't yet got to where the equity market and the bond market got to quite a long time ago. So and I see it, it is a it is a it's a lag and it's a kind of rotation. So interesting. And specifically the commercial, I mean you're, you're talking everything across the commercial uh spectrum, but including office. 
Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, I think the, the office market is where it's particularly yeah, intense at the moment. Um, the, the office market has, is, is, is coping with a lot of things. It's coping with rising interest rates. That's, that's not good news. Um, it's, it's coping with this whole changing landscape of how we work, this whole working from home thing. I was in the office yesterday. To Monday, many offices are half empty on a Monday. That's not great news if you're the owner of a, of a, of a property asset. The third element about property is this transition to, uh, to a more renewable uh, uh, energy uh, landscape. Most of the offices in which we work are just not suited to the to the climate change ambitions which we have uh, as countries. Huge amounts of money is required to be spent on upgrading the office infrastructure. If you're the owner of a of a property which stands at risk of being stranded by that process, and many properties will be stranded by that process. That's not a great place to be. So I would say of all the asset classes that I look at uh, in my quarterly investment outlook, the property, commercial property market is the one where I have changed my mind most clearly and become more negative on, on property than, than any other asset class. That's fascinating. Let's just go through some of these asset classes. Commodities. I mean, we've seen obviously the oil price come down, uh, but there's lingering issues uh, across the board. What does that mean to you in the outlook for commodities? Well, I think the outlook for commodities is quite mixed, actually, because uh, you, you, need, you need to distinguish between different commodities within that complex. Uh, I mean, I think the oil price, uh, you know, remains elevated. I mean, it is it is off its highs. You know, we're looking at $100 a barrel rather than $120 a barrel. Um, so but it, it feels like there's no real sense that it's going to go much lower in the short term. The, the, the industrial metals complex, and I'm thinking particularly about metals like copper, uh, for example, is in a very different state. I mean, we've seen a big pullback in that. And that is a clear reflection of anxiety about uh, economic activity in the world. I mean, they could, it's not called Dr. Copper for nothing. You know, it is, a, it is a measure of the health of the economy and it's a measure of sentiment about the health of the economy. So I think you need to distinguish between metals and, and energy at the moment. Okay, very interesting. Uh, let's go a little bit around the world. Uh, well, let's just ask about this other asset class, cash. Good to have some cash on the sidelines. Is there cash on the sidelines? Is that the right thing at this point? Well, do you know what? I always say that I always say, you know, have some cash in your in your back pocket because, you know, when when you get volatility in the market, if you don't have any cash, then you're not in a position to take advantage of the volatility when 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 markets dip, you know, you need to be have some dry powder to 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 buy back into the market. So I think my point about cash this quarter was, you know, if you're not using your cash now, when are you going to use your cash? You know, I mean, if we, ha you know, after a 20 percent fall in the stock market, um, right. if you're just if you're not going to use it now, then effectively any cash that you hold in your portfolio is just sitting there earning nothing losing money in inflation adjusted terms. So I, I guess it's a sort of encouragement to, to people to, to think about their cash holdings as real dry powder. It's, it's there to be used and it's there to be used when the opportunity arises. And I just think that if the opportunity hasn't arisen now, um, it's hard for me to think when it, when it will. Right. Interesting. Okay. So let's go to the geopolitical situation and, and maybe we'll, we'll make sure that it's within a market's context because there's not much 
anyone can do beyond that. Um, let's look at Europe. Ultimately, Europe is uh, having all of the issues that go along with the invasion of Ukraine, which has gone on and on and on and continues. Um, another huge buyer of European goods, services, everything, of course, is China. That's been difficult because of the US-China relationships. What do you think this sort of step in geopolitical tensions means for the US-China relations and then ultimately the friends of both sides? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and something that concerns me a little bit is that both sides have kind of painted themselves into a bit of a corner uh, here. It, it, it's not really necessary for them to to uh, ratchet up the, the tension in this situation at the moment. I really I don't see the benefit to anyone uh, in, in doing that. So so that does feel like a, a bit of a, a bit of a concern. And we saw that overnight uh, in the um, in the markets, particularly in, in the Asian market. So uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen were were off. Uh, Hong Kong was off, um, uh, but but also Japan and other and other Asian markets. Now, interestingly, it, it, as as we moved around the world, uh, the the effects sort of dissipated. So, you know, they were sort of two, three percent falls in Asia. By the time you got to Europe, it was much less. And 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 ditto, you know, by the time the the American markets opened, uh, you know, just recently, uh, it's sort of it's sort of petered out. So I think that's in, that's encouraging. But it, 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 it does show that locally there's a lot of anxiety uh, about about this situation. So, you know, other other countries, you mentioned Europe and Europe's, you know, Europe is a big exporting um, region. It's very uh, dependent both on the US and on China. It sort of sits between the middle. It sits in the middle, sits between the two of them. Um, it has to play its cards quite carefully. And at the, mo and at the same time, it is um, sitting on the, on the front line of the, of the Russia-Ukraine situation. So Europe is not in a good place. And it's no surprise that, that Europe was, the, was the, the worst performing region in that first half of the year. Um, and, uh, you know, from an investment perspective, that that starts to look quite interesting because there are lots, of great, okay. lots so of great companies in Europe, but there's a lot needs to happen before uh, I think anyone's going to get very excited uh, about Europe. And the first thing that needs to happen is we need to get some kind of resolution in Ukraine. So is it investable through the second half of this year or are you looking longer out? I have to be um, honest. I don't think that I would be rushing into that opportunity. Uh, however, I do, th you know, kind of motto that I have for investing is that you should not get more bearish as the market falls. I think that's a really right. important concept because it's so easy to become negative when you look at the news flow, you look at what's happening, you look at the uncertainty. But that, of course, is what creates the investment opportunity. And, you know, the, the, uh, Europe has got some great companies which are trading at very cheap valuations. It's not the only place where those opportunities, but it's a particular case. You were on the BBC this morning, you were saying, and it's, it was an interest, it's an interesting story. It's the story of one of the social media players just getting, you know, taken out of the kneecaps in terms of valuations. But then, of course, that's when... Many yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. So this was this was Pinterest. We were talking about the social media platform, and it's a really nice sort of real example of what I've just described in theoretical terms. You know, I mean, Pinterest was you know one of the great beneficiaries of the working from home lockdown situation, 
um, it, shares shot up to $90. Um, in the last year, it's fallen down below $20. It's been an absolutely spectacular collapse. It's kind of been emblematic of what's happened to those technology uh, stocks uh, all around the world. But what's happened today is they announced really not very exciting um, figures. The revenue growth was a lot slower. Uh, the costs have risen. They announced a loss um, when they were expecting to, um, uh, they were expected to, to deliver a, a, a profit. But uh, this activist investor, Elliott uh, Investment Management, has moved in. It's announced that it's uh, got a 9% stake in the, in, in the company. So it's a really good real world example of how there is a price for everything. You know, if, if, unless Pinterest is going under and there's no sign that that's the case, then at less than $20 compared to $90 a year ago, starting to look quite interesting. So interesting. What role, if any, does uh, emerging markets play in, in an investor's portfolio? And I'll note just in your report, you look at sort of Asia slash emerging markets because Asia is such a huge part of the emerging market story. Yeah, I, and I think that that's the key point about emerging markets. It's very difficult to to generalize about emerging markets because they're, they're, you know what is driving China is very different from what is driving, for example, uh, a, a Korean market or the Taiwanese market, which are essentially um, technology exporters to the rest of the world. So they are very much dependent on the, the health of the global economy. Uh, and that's a, that's a different dynam dynamic from China. And then, of course, you've got other emerging markets, which are really essentially commodity plays, right. um, you know, a Brazil or a South Africa. So I think it's quite unhelpful in a way that people talk about and we all do it. You know, we all talk yeah. about emerging markets. Yeah. It's not yeah. really, really that helpful because there's so many different moving parts. Yeah, there's a rating based on sort of the maturity of the financial system, but it, it it does miss a lot of things. Now, what about Japan? I, I was so interested to, to read your note about Japan. Um, it's it's not had the easiest time, and the currency, of course, has been front and center in terms of headlines. Although yeah. many currencies have been front and center in terms of headlines, but certainly the yeah. yen has. Interesting how how the yen has bounced back in the last. Yeah, week. I, I mean, it's been a very significant. I mean, and uh, again, you know, we were talking earlier on about how easy it is to be just slightly behind the curve. You talk about these things, and then you look and you realize the market has moved already. The market is is way ahead of you on these things. But Japan is is a, is interesting. Japan has had a difficult year. It's had a difficult situation with COVID. Um, uh, it's um, uh, it, it's had a difficult problem with uh, with the, with the currency. I mean, keeping its interest rates at rock bottom has really dragged the currency down. And historically, that's actually been good news for um, Japan because it makes its uh, exports more competitive in in world markets. But I think what we've seen in recent years is Japan has moved a lot of its manufacture outside Japan. So it actually benefits less from a weak yen than, than it used to. And what it does do, of course, is it, it cranks up the cost of imports of food and energy. And Japan imports a lot of food and energy. So uh, a weak currency is, is not really that, uh, that good for Japan. So it's, got, it's had lots of headwinds. The consequence of those headwinds is a bit like Europe. Hmm. The Japanese market is super cheap. The Japanese market valuations are very, very low. And, and I just think that unless things are really bad, Japan, I think it looks very interesting. Layer on top the geopolitical tensions 
Does that fit with really bad? Or are you talking more about a recession and the growth picture? Well, I think all of that, all, all of that together. I mean, I yeah. think it would require all of it would require all of those things to okay. not go well for right. to justify the Japanese valuation at the moment. I think it's a I think it's a good value market. Let's go back to real estate. Lots of interest in this. When you say commercial real estate, does that include, Tom, apartment rentals, for instance? What are your thoughts on apartment rentals or residential real estate kind of across the boards? Yes. I mean, I was talking to I was talking to our property experts about this and they were, you know, they were they, they were quite nervous about the, 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 the residential rental market, particularly in Europe, um, actually. Um, I, Interestingly, we had here in the UK, we had some property sector data out today, which was very positive. 11% rise in house prices over, over the last year. Now, people have been talking for, for, for months about how toppy the, the UK residential market feels. Do you know what? People have been saying that the UK residential market is toppy for, you know, as long as I've been an adult, <laughs> which is quite a long time. So, you know, it, it, you know I'm, I, I think that it, it's entirely possible that the, that the, that the, the residential market holds up at, at, at current levels. But I was quite surprised to see that 11 percent rise um, over the last year. It's been very, very strong market. That's fascinating. I mean, while we're on the topic, ultimately, Sterling took a massive hit. We know that. Um, What's the outlook for it at this point? It has it has a different story because of the UK, probably including its housing market. But just really, the investment story for the UK is different to Europe. How how do you look at the different currencies? Yes, I mean, interestingly, both um, both uh, the euro and the pound have really suffered, uh, you know, in tandem against the dollar. And I think what that's telling us is that really this is a story about dollar strength uh, yes. rather than sterling weakness or euro weakness. There's an element of that, but it's really about dollar strength. And that, in turn, is a consequence of the interest rate differentials. So the Fed is just moving faster on uh, on interest rates. But interestingly, just, you know, we've been talking about what's been happening in July. Um, this sense that maybe interest rates are not moving quite as far uh, as they were, has taken the edge off the dollar strength, and it's it's at the margin. But the pound has the pound has definitely strengthened a bit against the dollar. The euro has strengthened a bit. So I think we've had the extremes, and I think we'll probably move back uh, more into the range than we have been. The recession question is probably a question of of whether it's shallow or deeper rather than if it'll happen. Um, just to extend that a little bit, what would be the impact of a U.S. recession on Asia Pacific? The principal consequence of a U.S. recession is that the Fed will um, will go into reverse and the interest rates will start coming down. That will um, that will reduce the strength uh, of the dollar, uh, and I think ultimately that probably is is a is a positive for. Um, for, for the Asian market. So I think what we're going to see over the next year is, you know, we've moved to quite extreme positions in investments. And I think over the next year, we maybe we'll move back into uh, into the middle. Uh, so things that have done really well, maybe we'll come back a bit. Things that have done really badly, we'll, 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 we'll do a bit better. So I, I think it's a sort of period of moderation is how I'd put it. It is kind of fascinating. So this is going back to the impact and the discussion around um, delisting of Chinese companies within the US, the so-called ADR discussion. 
it, it often can be as long in the trade wars as well, generally uh, a result of geopolitical tensions. Any any sort of concerns there that you see or? Well, I mean, you, you make the point there that, you know, this is actually actually very little to do with the actual um, uh, situation on the ground. This is to do with the bigger picture. And that's why um, I think that, you know, we should have our eyes on the bigger picture. Uh, and the smaller things will sort themselves out. You know, they are they're kind of pawns in this bigger story of trade and competition. Well, competition. Absolutely. Of yeah, geopolitical competition. And, uh, you know, all, everything else is a consequence of that. When you um, take a look at UK politics, I, I, I've left this to the area in a few minutes, but I am fascinated to know you've got the two front runners in the in the Tory campaign. Uh, lots of discussion about tax cutting, which is um, interesting. So where where will that go? Because it, it seems like that could be interpreted as the stimulative and inflationary. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, to, to understand what, what is being talked about in terms of uh, tax cuts, you have to understand the process of um, of how the election works for the for the Conservative Party leadership. It's basically the, 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 the short list of candidates is whittled down to two by the by the MPs, by the parliamentarians. But then the decision between those two is made by members of the Conservative Party. Now, that's about 160. That's the same as Canada. It's exactly. It's the, we do that. We, so you know, we, we, came, we came from you in terms of the uh, political system. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, it's only about one hundred and sixty thousand people. It's not many people, but it's a but it's a particular demographic and political slice of the population. And these tax cuts that have been talked about by both candidates are aimed at that constituency. So I think what so I think you you take with something of a pinch of salt what they have to say um, about tax cuts because you have to think well once this process is over how much of that will actually see the light of day. Probably not that much. But on the face of it, you're absolutely right. It is stimulative. It is inflationary. If the if the politicians are cutting taxes and raising inflation as a consequence, it just means that the Bank of England has to work even harder uh, to get on top of inflation on the other hand. So it doesn't feel like a particularly coherent system if the two are not working together. Uh, final question. Do you see a ton of it feels like all central banks are kind of front loading? Um, is that the same sense that you get? And, you know, ultimately, what does that mean? Yes. So I think I think all central banks are trying to get their interest rate hikes in while they can. I think they all want to have a bit of dry powder. They know that a slowdown is coming next year. They know it's going to be difficult next year. They want to be able to get interest rates to a level where they can actually cut them uh, to re-stimulate the economy. So we saw the Australians today raising by half a percentage point. Again, we had the Fed, we've had the Bank of England. Everyone's trying to get these rates in, these rate rises in early. Right. It's been fantastic reading your report. Thank you. I, I direct people to that, but also and also to the, the Telegraph article. Tom Stevenson, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Thank you very much, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.